1: Bloomberg is now on your dashboard with Apple CarPlay and Android Auto. It gives you access to every Bloomberg podcast, live audio feeds from Bloomberg Radio, print stories from Bloomberg News in audio form, and the latest headlines at the click of a button with Bloomberg News Now. It's free with the latest version of the Bloomberg Business app. That's the Bloomberg Business app. Get it on your phone in the Apple App Store or on Google Play. Just download the app, connect your phone to your car, and get started. And it's all presented by our sponsor, Interactive Brokers.
2: Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney alongside my co-host, Matt Miller.
1: Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg
2: experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. It's Thursday, so it's not, you know, Merger Monday, but there's a trade out there in the shale business, um, and we've seen a lot of consolidation in the shale uh, patch uh, out there in really the last couple of years. Um, and we have another deal here, APA, to buy shale oil driller callan Petroleum for $4.5 billion. And we want to talk shale. Um, we talk with Vince Piazza. He is our energy analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. <laughs> hey, Vince, I know you've been busy <laughs> recently kind of parsing through all these M&A trades in the shale patch here in the U.S., Talk to us about what APA is. What, what is APA doing here with this acquisition of Calum Petroleum?
3: Yeah. Well, look in the Permian, Paul. And by the way, Paul, ha- happy New Year to you and you yours. You too, sir. Um, it, 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 what we have here is a uh, a jump ball uh, for uh, for acreage in uh, the Permian, and we've seen this across uh, several years. Uh, it's it paused and then kicked up again um, most recently, but this is really about um, larger players looking to gain scale and smaller players looking at the environment in front of them with uh, higher rates and Big guys getting bigger um, there's really not a lot of room for them and you know we cover roughly we follow roughly 14-15 names in the Permian that are below 500,000 net acres and they need to do something they need to do something to uh, survive or to uh, put themselves up for sale and uh, Callan did and we see this as a continuation of uh consolidation for scale and asset concentration these guys are selling a commodity there's very little differentiation the way you gain efficiency uh the the way you gain productivity is to be big, to have scale, to have concentration across uh, your region, and in this case, it's the Permian. We've mm-hmm. seen a lot of M&A in the Permian on the oil side. We haven't seen a lot on the gas side. I think that's where the real story will be in 2024. You know, natural gas has likely bottomed in 2022. We should see better conditions, better balances. We should see more consolidation in the gas side as well as Especially with the curve, the way it looks, um, and we'll probably see that more in the Haynesville and also in the Marcellus. But what this really tells us is there is scarcity value, wow. right? And so you are bidding up smaller operators, mid-cap operators, operators that were privately sponsored, and the PE shops need to monetize these investments to recycle that capital as well. So you're seeing. Small, mid-sized PE-backed names selling out, and you're seeing publicly traded names also selling out, especially in an environment where you have higher rates. In the case of Callen, uh, they were one of the higher levered names um, of the companies that we follow. So, you know, I think it is reality coming to call on them and other smaller operators
2: yeah i mean i'm just you know bloomberg's got some good reporting here just summarizing what's happened so far just recently in october exxon Mobil reached a 60 billion dollar deal to buy pioneer natural resources chevron followed it up with a 53 billion dollar agreement for hess corporation and in december occidental petroleum agreed to acquire crown rock for 10.8 billion so vince as you say a lot of uh, deals getting done here talk to us about just the natural gas market in general, uh, you know, because when we talk about energy, we tend to talk about oil more than than nat gas here. Talk to us about where we are in that market today. What's the outlook?
3: Well, um, the outlook right now, just given the, the backdrop for weather and the rather mild temperatures that we've had here early on in the winter season, um, it's been. It's been a tough go for natural gas. Uh, You know, we would have thought we would have seen a better bid um, into the winter, uh, but with a very mild December um, and – a little bit turning here in January as uh, the cooler temps uh, settle in, but it's been a pretty tough go. Uh, but then again, it's better than where we were last year, where we saw uh, NAC gas uh, go below $2 very briefly. But we think we're past that point. We think 2024 balances will likely tighten. Um, you know, right now we're in this mix of this uh, 260, 250 um, spot. But we think that things will improve. There is a structural secular trend, and that is toward LNG exports. Um, the U.S. has grown its export capacity. It will continue to grow this export capacity through 2020 uh, through 2030, and we think this is a net positive to. Pull the excess capacity that we have in the U.S. into the European corridor and in the Asia corridor. You know, last year we had a lot of flows go into the European corridor, uh, just given the fact of you know, Russia and the Ukraine yep. war and what that meant for energy security. So, you the U.S. was a buffer for that. We will continue to be a buffer for that. LNG export capacity gains uh, will be a structural story that will hear more of and that will tighten balances for us in the U.S., you also have uh, gas in the power stack that has gained share that will continue to be stable um, over the next year or so. Um, we will continue to gain share there as well on the industrial side. So you have both a cyclical story, which is the weather component uh, that we can control, but there is also a structural component to it that does provide longer term growth uh, for natural gas, not just as a transition fuel, not just as a bridge fuel, but as a key component within um, uh, the, the the energy complex, the energy portfolio.
2: Hey, Vince, you know, it's interesting that the U.S. has become a net exporter of oil here. And a lot of probably a lot of our listeners probably aren't aware of that, particularly the ones that kind of remember back in the 70s when we had those uh, oil uh, emergencies and shocks here. And a lot of that's due to. Uh, The shale. You're the expert on shale. You're the expert on fracking. Can you explain to us when these frackers blast in a bunch of this water into the rock what comes out in terms of oil versus natural gas? How does that typically work?
3: Yeah, so... In a place like the Permian, where um, most of the M&A activity is occurring, not only do you have your crude oil, but you also have what's called associated natural gas or associated gas. You know, typically you will have something to the effect of two-thirds liquids, you know, one-third gas. That gas has to go someplace, and it has been a big boon to a place like the Permian, uh, which is um, the third largest producer. Of natural gas as a standalone basin, which is really incredible when you think about. We're really drilling uh, for crude oil in, in that uh, in that basin, but what we have here is a plethora of natural gas, um, and the export market is the most uh, likely. Um, area for it to move through in order to balance in order to balance th- these markets in general no matter where you drill you're going to drill some natural gas if you're drilling for um, uh, uh, crude oil as well so when we do talk about natural gas, it is a default to talk about um, crude oil as well, since that is the driver of what we come up with when we also drill for um, natural gas and oil. So it is the thing that stirs the drink uh, for the natural gas market as well.
2: So, you know, I I guess we all kind of got a little bit more smarter on uh, liquefied natural gas when Russia did invade uh, Ukraine, and that really cut off the supply of Russian gas to Europe. And we've got a lot of it, but it's not easy to transport, is it? you got to do this whole liquefaction process. How, how How is that whole part of the industry developing?
3: It's developing very rapidly. Uh, we're growing capacity. Uh, we have become a key exporter. Ah uh, To not only Europe but also uh, to Asia, uh, one thing that is quite key uh, for us here in the u s, and we saw this last year as well, our ability to adapt quickly and move those ba- move those molecules into the market that needed it the most. Uh, we were saved by a relatively warm winter in Asia, and we yep. were able to move uh, those those molecules into Europe to help them uh, restock their storage uh, we have here um in in Europe a relatively stout storage at uh, well over um 83% uh, full, uh filled and so for this winter at least Uh, natural gas storage is not going to be an issue. Uh, And we've done an exceptional job and the European Union has done an exceptional job refilling its capacity to deal with um, any uncertainty that would occur uh, not only on the war front, but also uh, in terms of uh, weather as well. So um, natural gas um, in the U.S. being exported to other countries um, has been a key contributor uh, to how we are uh, looking Looking to uh, balance um, our market here in the U.S., um, and you know, right now um, with Europe being filled, um, uh, the Asia market um, is looking quite, um, quite attractive, and it is more profitable uh, to move those molecules into Asia relative to the European market.
2: Vince great stuff great tortoise force there on the energy space Nat guess Vince Piazza senior industry analyst uh, covering the energy space we've got a great energy team, a global energy uh, team, because you have to look at energy on a global basis, and that's what Bloomberg Intelligence does. Uh, we appreciate getting some time from Vince Piazza here. Again, some more MA and uh, in the natural gas space here in the U.S. in uh, some of those shale basins. Uh, as Vince was saying, there's a lot of demand there, and there's a need for scale, particularly from some of these smaller companies. So again, saw another deal today. APA to buy shale oil driller Callan Petroleum
0: Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Lee of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com TechSF.
4: You're listening to The Taint. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get
2: your podcasts. Here's something that I don't do. I don't TikTok. Uh, I know it is just a monster of a social media platform, particularly with the younger demos, and really a competitive threat to a lot of the existing social media platforms out there from certainly an advertising perspective and maybe even a e-commerce perspective. And uh, we've done some research in Bloomberg Intelligence on this. Mandeep Singh, uh, he's our senior tech analyst for uh, Bloomberg Intelligence. He mans our global tech team, which I'll tell you is one of the best tech research teams on the street, BI Go. Um, I know I just said that about our energy team, but that's also true with our tech team as well. We have folks, Europe, North America, Asia, pretty much everywhere you need to be. So Mandeep, talk to us about TikTok here. I mean, You know, my basic knowledge of these social media platforms is just get as many people as you can on your platform and then to try to monetize them by selling advertising, trying to get them to buy stuff. Uh, What's TikTok's strategy here?
5: Well, so they've done exactly that in terms of, you know, getting to 100 million plus daily active users, monetizing via ads, $15 billion run rate. And there is a real risk, uh, the fact that we are going into an election year this company could be banned. We have been talking about it forever. Could They're be
2: banned. Could be banned in the U.S. Yes, because that, of its Chinese ownership. big dance. Yeah. Okay. Yeah,
5: and and that's been the case, you know, in terms of a risk for the last couple of years. Yep. Hasn't happened, but we know this is an election year, and so there will be more focus on that. And the fact that they announced this e-commerce play to me, it suggests they want to be out there for the small businesses because these are the companies that will advertise, that will create their storefront on TikTok. And once you have merchants on your platform, it gets all the more hard to ban such a platform because people are actually generating ah, revenue. So strategy here. Okay. that seems to be the play here, but we know social commerce hasn't been successful in the US. Take a look at Facebook. They tried Facebook shops, Instagram shops, never really took off. And and so the play here is something that hasn't worked out in the US because the buying behavior of US consumers is very different from the Asia consumers where social commerce has been successful. Douyin, which is the TikTok equivalent, is a 200 billion dollar GMV business in in China.
2: So social commerce, that's a kind of kind of a new term for me, but that's basically just taking social media users, Facebook, whatever, in this case TikTok, and having them and drive I guess e-commerce off of that platform getting them to start buying stuff and then TikTok will make Yeah their, their finishing
5: cut. the transaction within your social media app. So okay. right now they show you an ad and that tra- takes the user traffic to the e-commerce website. In this case, the experience is in-app. It makes a ton of sense. I mean, it makes for a good buying experience if I can do things within the app as opposed to going to another app. So So why
2: why hasn't it worked here in the US, do you think? Because think of how an e-commerce
5: website works. You need logistics, you need payments, you need sourcing, you need inventory. Social media companies oh. aren't doing that. Okay. And That's Amazon good. is doing that. They, they've built so many warehouses just yep. for doing that. They have their own delivery. So e-commerce requires all these things. And for TikTok, they're likely going to partner. So they have already partnered with Shopify and Walmart. Okay. They're going to look for more partners. Obviously, Amazon has done the same with other social media companies. We would have never imagined Amazon partnering with Meta right. and Snapchat. They've done that.
2: So uh, so what's the when you talk to the folks in the e-commerce world, what's the feeling about the ability of ByteDance slash TikTok to actually have some success here in the US?
5: Very unlikely, at least from my lens, given, you know, you need uh, to match that Amazon experience that people have in the US, right? Two-day prime shipping, one-day prime shipping. And so for them to do it, one, they need the merchants on the platform. They need to offer a lot of stuff. But look, they appeal to the younger demographic. We know TikTok appeals to that 10 to uh, 25-year-olds. And they, can adopt a new platform much more quickly than other consumers so i wouldn't be surprised if they use incentives to drive that e-commerce shift but in the end there is a political bend to it and the reason why they're doing it is just to make sure they have a lot of small merchants on the platform which increases their
2: odds that they won't be banned in in the us all right so for those folks that aren't really that familiar with the business of TikTok, bike dance which owns TikTok, aims to grow the size of its U.S. e-commerce business tenfold to as much as $17.5 billion this year, according to people familiar with the matter, posing a bigger threat to Amazon.com. So that's laying it out there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's an ambitious goal, but
5: we know the U.S. e-commerce market is huge. So it's it's still, you know, less than uh, 5% of the overall e-commerce market
2: that's out there. And TikTok uh, was last year on track to amass around $20 billion in global gross merchandise value, with Southeast Asia contributing the bulk of the sales through its platform, Bloomberg News reported. So now they're saying, okay, so they have a success, some success in other parts of the world. Now the question is, can they do it here in the US? Yeah. And when you talk to Amazon, they're like, they're a fly, we're not even worried about them. Is that the case? I
5: I, I think Amazon did preempt that. So in December, they announced this partnership with Meta, with Snapchat, with Pinterest. That didn't happen so far. So Amazon and the other social media platforms want to partner with these e-commerce platforms because in the end, This is the next leg of the offline to online shift. The video shopping, the live stream shopping, which you have seen play out in China and the Asian regions where uh, TikTok has had some success.
2: All right, I can't let you out of here without talking about AI, uh, whatever that is. Uh, Generative AI market, this is your research, dude. Generative AI market appears set to reach 1.3 trillion by 2032, what are you talking about? Well, so
5: what we saw last year was a bumper year in terms of what Nvidia showed us, you know, their data yep. center sales. So uh, I I don't think anyone can write off such forecasts now after <laughs> what we saw with Nvidia last year. But look, it, it's going to happen in phases. Right now, we are still in that infrastructure phase where chip companies are seeing that demand, and more so around you know the accelerator chips, the GPUs. Not every type of chip is in demand now. You're seeing memory companies see that AI demand and gradually you're going to see other types of infrastructure really get replaced within data centers. We are going through a massive data center refresh cycle and then it will trickle to applications. The real disruption will be in how we use our application software, because AI is gonna redefine the way we use software, and and that's the 1.3 trillion component over 10 years, the disruption. All right, here's
2: some more numbers, because you guys have a lot of numbers in your research. Generative AI may expand to about 10 to 12% of the total IT hardware software services ad spending and gaming markets by 2032 from less than one percent based upon uh, the bi calculations that gives you some sense of kind of the growth here
5: yeah and and that's the disruptive element we're not talking about companies finding new dollars to put in you know generative ai you are going to see some existing spend being migrated to generative AI uh, for good reasons, because of productivity. Copilots make you more productive, the workers more productive, and and that is why companies are gonna move some of their existing spend towards these
1: gen AI tools.
2: You guys wrote a research report on this, right? Yes. I, mean, where can, you, I can get Bloomberg Terminal users. I mean, basically this report tells you everything you need to know about be uh ai yeah it's Get a it 60, the page yes. 60 page report 60 page report bi go gets you to bloomberg intelligence that's where you can find it yeah anywhere else for like the non-subscriber the non uh
5: bloomberg people oh they could reach out to the uh, i the media folks and uh i'm okay. sure they can share something all right because
2: yeah. i'm telling you folks um, a lot of people as we all know in 2023 ai was not just the tech story it was a u.s global marketplace story that drove have a lot of the gains we saw in the equity markets in 2023 that weight loss drug so and i know we've got a weight loss report out there the glp stuff from sam fazelli so uh, again some great stuff coming out of bloomberg intelligence check it out on the bloomberg terminal bi go mandeep singh thank you so much for joining us he's a senior analyst for technology bloomberg intelligence uh he's in the studio he's in the office unlike of some management level folks at bi but i take note of that who comes in and who doesn't mandeep singh he is our senior guy on technology along with anurag rana doing our global coverage here you're listening to the tape catch our live
4: program bloomberg markets weekdays at 10 a.m eastern on bloomberg radio the tune in app bloomberg.com and the bloomberg business app you can also listen live on amazon alexa from our flagship new york station just say alexa play bloomberg 11 30
2: All right, let's check in with uh, Ed Harrison. Why do we do that? Because he's the senior editor of Bloomberg News. He's a smart person, has a ton of experience here covering uh, the markets, and he's got a great column that a lot of people feel like is a must-read, the everything risk column uh, for Bloomberg News. His latest one is this, 2024's risk is a hot U.S. economy. What do you mean by that? Ed, senior editor of Bloomberg News joins us. Ed, what do you mean by uh, the 2024 risk is a hot U.S. economy?
6: Hey, happy new year to you by the way. Cheers. Um the uh I think the risk is that everyone really is expecting a soft landing. Yes. Uh but really they're expecting that soft landing to be associated with enough uh softness to get rate cuts. In fact, in the bond market, we have 140 uh, uh basis points of cuts that are being priced in and we're already saying that as soon as March we could have a rate cut. That's what the pricing for the market is if the the economy is too hot and right now we have gdp now at 2.5% that's too much for those kind of rate cuts to come through and so if you have to look at where uh the the uh the path of least resistance is right now it's towards lower yields generally but this is going to uh be a huge headwind against that and therefore that's going to be the pain trade uh yet again this year so is there a reasonable
2: call here that the fed kind of knows all that and therefore they may hold back a little bit and push the rate cuts uh to mid or
6: later in the year to try to you know kind of avoid some of that yeah i mean i think that that's what the 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 tete that you're going to have in the beginning of the year is the fed versus the markets saying yes we're going to cut rates but how much are we going to cut them by with the with the market really you know front running these these rates very aggressively but you know to a person i think that the fed officials have been saying over the last several uh, weeks that, yes, that's right, we're going to do it in Q3, we're going to do it in Q4, not in uh, Q1, maybe at the end of the second quarter. It all depends on obviously what the data say. And I think that this has all been spurred on by that December uh, dot plot that we got, which showed 75 basis points of cuts more than we'd seen in the September dot plot. And then a very uh, you know, um, some people would say dovish pal yep. in the press conference after that.
2: Yeah, we saw that. Uh, Ed, as you've called out before in the bond market, we had a, you know the 10-year Treasury, which, as Tom Keane likes to say, was you know 50 a cup of coffee ago was was 5%. We traded all the way down to like three and a quarter percent on the 10-year. We backed it up a little bit here now at 3.97%. So, you know, maybe the market's trying to, to adjust here. I guess the next big data point is going to be the uh, non-farm payrolls tomorrow
6: yeah i mean uh, i'm i'm with the uh, fx rates team and uh we're uh anticipating that uh, hotly you know especially because we had the adp data that came out today that was higher than expected we also had the jobless claims data both continuing and initial claims were lower than expected so there's a lot of uh angst if you will <laughs> about where we're positioned in the bond market uh, vis-a-vis that uh, that jobs report because if the jobs report is hotter than expected, exactly as I'm saying, that's the pain trade. Yep. Then you could see uh, the you uh, a big reaction to that. So what are your sources saying out there in terms of the positioning in in the
2: marketplace? I guess in 2023, the, a lot of the quote unquote smart money, the hedge funds, you know, had a net short position out there on the treasury. Uh, uh, market, um, you know, on the other side of that trade was long-term investors like mutual funds, like Warren Buffett saying, you know, I'm going to show up at every auction and, and, and keep buying U.S. treasuries. Where do you think kind of the smart, faster
6: money may be with treasury positioning right now? Well, you, you know, it, that's it. That's an interesting question, because Ultimately, Matt, I think that uh, we've seen such a big move that you would think that the shorts would move in. But I think people are now they're unwinding their longs and we're moving to sort of a more neutral position. We haven't gotten to the point where there are a lot of people who are starting to to, uh, reanimate the shorts yet. I think that's when we would see a, a bigger move to the upside for years. Yields, if we got that, but we we aren't seeing that yet now. And as a result, I'm thinking that you know we're, we're sort of in a range-bound mode at this point with four percent sort of the sweet spot within that mode. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, the Fed funds at five five sort of limits how much uh, uh, upside you can have because the yield curve would be too inverted. But then at the same time, how much higher can you go from here? Um, i don't think that you're going to get more than up to 425 435 at the max so we're yeah. kind of in this 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 range where 4% is really kind of uh, a sweet spot for the market at this point in time W I R P go
2: world interest rate probability function on the Bloomberg terminal kind of tries to forecast uh, where uh, the Fed will go with the rates based upon the fed funds futures I don't know. It's pricing it up to six rate cuts this year. Uh, you know, starting, I don't know when. I mean, h- how do you feel about that? Is a market just too ahead of itself? Maybe not once again, I'll say underline once again, not paying attention really
6: or listening to Fed Chairman Powell. Well, you know, it's a, it's a good question about what the market's doing collectively. I mean, the basically you're you're trying to um, you know give your winners uh, t- uh, room to breathe. Uh, and you know when the when the Fed basically gave a green light in December, the people who were bullish in the market they they pushed it to the max. And there hasn't been any push. There hasn't been enough pushback, and we haven't had enough data. We haven't any had any uh, Fed meetings to dispel the notion that you could get those six uh, rate cuts. So people are putting those positions on. I think that as the data come in likely th- those six rate cuts will get uh, paired back to a more uh, manageable number. The only way that you're going to get them, unfortunately, uh, is as if you have a recession. I think then you're actually going to get more than 150 basis points of cuts. And I know that, um, I think it's Wells Fargo is the one, uh, no, no, it's it's TD. Uh, they're the ones who are predicting uh, 200 basis points of cuts. Wow. Wow, yeah, that that would suggest
2: uh, something's uh, askew there in the economy. Hey, Ed, thanks so much for joining us. Ed Harrison, he's a senior editor for Bloomberg News, got tons of experience in the markets. He's also a former diplomat at the U.S. State Department. How about that? Um, So he's kind of got a varied experience, a great worldview looking at these markets here uh, as part of our Bloomberg News team. Appreciate getting a few minutes of his time.
0: From Silicon Valley to Wall Street,
4: You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130.
2: Let's talk a little bit of economics. We've got some breaking news here. Michael McKee joins us. Michael, what's happening with our friends at the New York St. Louis Fed?
7: They are getting a new boss. Really? <laughs> Alberto Musalam. He is a PhD economist uh, and has worked on Wall Street uh, for a significant amount of his career, also at the IMF and also at uh, the New York Fed. He was the uh, most recently, the non-executive chair at the Man Group and a member of the board at Freddie Mac. He says he'll resign those two positions. He was the CEO of Events Asset Management, and he was a managing director and partner at Tudor Investment. Oh, so okay. he has uh, got around. a broad Wall Street background, and uh, it looks like um, some experience at the Fed. So he has straddled both worlds. So when you, when a, a
2: bank, regional bank, gets gets a new head. How do you, does how do you kind of view it? Is it is there a period of just kind of getting to know each other, figure things things out, or and, and is this new Fed president given I guess authority over some period of time, or how's that work the transition? Uh,
7: well, Jim Bullard is already gone. Yeah, uh, he left last August, and he's uh, now at uh, uh, Purdue University. Now the uh, first vice president. For the St. Louis Fed takes over and represents the St. Louis Fed at all the Fed meetings and uh, things like that. Uh, Kathy O'Neill, she is not voting okay. this year, uh, so it's not an issue. She uh, presents what information she has to the um, to the Fed uh, and. Uh, takes part in the discussions. Uh, he is going to take over starting in April, April 2nd. So he will miss the first two meetings of the year and then uh, begin to take part. He doesn't vote until 2025.
2: Okay. What's the Historically, what's the role of the St. Louis Fed been? They have a, a reputation well, for well. It, it
7: evolved. It, it was known as one of the kind of um, monetary, monetarist banks where the money supply and that sort of thing mattered a lot. Uh, but under Jim Bullard, that went away as monetarism sort of died out okay. uh, when it became hard to tell exactly what was money these <laughs> days. And then um, the, uh, the, uh, new, the the new the President Bullard rather uh, sort of became one of the think leaders, okay. thought leaders at the Fed. He came up with the idea of regimes yep. where you didn't change monetary policy unless the whole regime of the economy changed. Uh, and he was one of the first to really mm-hmm. get dovish going into uh, the g- going into COVID and, and coming out of the uh, Great Financial Crisis. Right. So um, that's kind of their reputation. We'll okay. see what Mr. Uh, Musalem. Very has good. to say. All right, exciting news for those Fed watchers. St. Louis Fed
2: names ex-tutor and New York Fed executive as president. St. Louis, the gateway. Uh, to the West. Alberto Musalem is now its new president.
4: You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130.
2: I've been hearing a lot of people, fund managers, strategists, when they talk about 2024 and maybe some of the sectors that we should be looking at, they say banks. Now, I think they mean like J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, those types of things. I'm not sure they're talking about the regional banks, the community banks that really had some problems in the beginning of last year so i wanted to flush that out and there's only one person to do that's emily uh that's herman He covers all of the regional banks for bloomberg intelligence he joins us here in our bloomberg interactive broker studio so herman is it too early to go back into regional banks yet because i know you were very good at telling us it's an earnings problem right. it's an earnings challenge mm-hmm. for these banks uh, it's not necessarily a credit risk problem it's exactly. an earnings problem so where are we
8: Right now, um, the market's been pretty uh, optimistic. Uh, you've seen a big rally in regional banks over the past couple months to, to end the year, and that's really driven by interest rates, right? Um, the the market's now expecting you know five six rate cuts in 2024, which would help alleviate some of the earnings issues, the the revenue issues from higher funding costs. So so that's really what's driving the rally. Um, it remains to be seen if that will hold, but uh, it's more optimism on rates more than in anything else
2: so I see I'm just kind of looking at my Bloomberg chart you know just from the lows back in I guess late October Mm -hmm. uh, the spider S&P regional banking ETF which is KRE is the ticker up about a 33% so again that nice rally you were talking about where are we in terms of valuation? Is is there still room to grow here? Do we still have earnings risk? How do you put it all together?
8: Yeah, sure. So valuation's still fairly, uh, you know, uh, attractive. Um, we were t- towards that that October time frame. We were uh, uh, about one times tangible book value on an adjusted basis, which is historically the trough level. So um, now we're we're a bit higher than that. Um, the revenue picture and the earnings picture is going to be um, a wild card with credit quality, right? So if if the market's correct that we see rate cuts, um, the interest margins for the banks could improve in 2024. But what's um, still in flux is really what's happening with credit quality. Are banks gonna see higher loan losses from areas like commercial real estate, particularly office commercial real estate, multifamily commercial real estate. So those are the questions that still remain unanswered for 2024.
2: So in terms of the commercial real estate exposure, is it at the J.P. Morgans of the world or is it at the m and banks of the world? Yeah, sure. So it's more
8: at the m and banks of the world and increasing and higher as you go lower in scale and size for, for banks, right? So the smaller community banks have more commercial real estate and it sort of grows as you become a large you know, regional bank. And then the banks like J.P. Morgan have more diversification. So uh, it really, we, we partially the numbers, looking at office commercial real estate, it's about 2% on on average for the banks that I cover, the large regional banks. So it's a fairly manageable exposure. It really does create a lot of headline risk. And when you see a, and when the banks reported in the fourth quarter, for example, there are a couple of uh, flagged non-performing loans in office commercial real estate. So that spooked the market a little bit for banks like Zions and PNC, for example.
2: Right. So, all right. So where are we in terms of the earnings recovery Mm -hmm. for these banks have we seen trough earnings do you think or is there still risk to the estimates out there
8: yeah um I think that's going to be a good question for for banks heading into earnings season over the next couple of weeks. Um, the banks have talked about even before the expectation of rate cuts in 2024 that net margins would stabilize because there hasn't been any, any rate hikes in, in recent quarters. So that's something that's been beneficial for banks to stabilize their margins and not have their funding costs increase like they did in in, in most of 2023. So that's that's helpful. And if you do get rate Cuts that would even alleviate some of the pressures of a higher deposit costs and banks having to pay up to to attract um, deposits into regional banks. All
2: right, MA. I bumped into my buddy on the train today. He's an okay. MA banker for uh, an investment bank that specializes in banks. Mm-hmm. He is Deferred his retirement for a while, much to his wife's chagrin, (laughs) because he thinks he's going to print money over the next couple three years, putting these banks together on the M&A front. Right. Um, I mean, there's. I guess what I learned during the regional bank crisis from last year, from reading your research, is that there's four thousand regional banks around the country. I don't know if that's a big number or a small number. It seems like a lot. It seems like maybe there's ripe for some consolidation. How do you think that plays out?
8: Yeah, we do think there's, there's, uh, it's an industry that's very ripe for consolidation that will happen over time. Um, Regional banks in particular, the ones that I cover, are facing higher regulatory um, scrutiny, tougher regulatory costs, so that all entails a a need for scale. And the banks have talked about that um, collectively, me saying that when costs are higher, especially on the regulatory side, you need scale to really absorb some of these costs. And so that's something that the mar- the, the the banks are open to. Really, it depends on a couple of factors. One, uh, the regulatory response for M&A. Um, the Biden administration has been pretty cautious on bank M&A. And, and you've seen the Fed be very slow in in approving bank deals over the past um, several years. Uh, So that's a factor. It creates a lot of uncertainty for for the banks, for the buyer and acquirer to to deal with um, an elongated regulatory approval process. And number two, interest rates. Um, When rates were as high as they were, it does create a bit of a challenge in... Putting the two banks together when you mark to market the target's balance sheet, so the merger mat doesn't make sense right now. But if rates do come down even more, I think you'll see more and more conversations, and potentially that's a 2024 event.
2: All right. So if I'm looking at this group here, um, do I stick with what I consider to be the high quality ones? I'm thinking right. again, an M and T, a mm-hmm. PNC bank, the, the names I know, right. or do we maybe I go down to some of the the smaller cap names and maybe I get some better valuation there? How do, the clients you talked to, how are they playing it?
8: Yeah, I think at this point, you're, you're seeing some more uh, appetite for some of the banks that felt more challenges in 2023. So banks like Key Corp, like Comerica, just got an upgrade earlier today from an analyst, uh, Western Alliance. Those are banks that... <laughs> were a bit more challenged by the rate backdrop and the fallout from the SVB and First Republic signature failures. And you've seen a, more of a bid for those banks over the past few few months. So it's, that's something I would uh, point to as something to look look at.
2: The good news is we haven't had to talk to you much recently. Yeah, and that right. means we haven't had much or anything really, any any notable failure mm-hmm. or stress in the regional bank business. So with right. a little bit of hindsight, can we say This was kind of a a handful of one-off kind of issues, or... Is there something that's going to have to change in the industry level?
8: Right. Um, I would point to the fact that the banks that did fail that I mentioned earlier, they had very different business models. They were fast-growing. So I I think what we learned from from the turmoil last year is that it's maybe an oxymoron to say you're a fast-growing bank. Maybe you don't want to be that because you're introducing a lot of risk to your balance sheet when you do that. Uh, Risk to... potential deposit flight when things go awry and interest rate risk, especially when rates were lower and you were, you know, burdening your balance sheet with with, uh, securities that then uh, were underwater when rates rose. So that's something, those were the lessons learned. And uh, the the other regional banks in my coverage universe are much more stable uh, in their in their um, strategies and business management and balance sheet management practices, so I think what happened was the the banks that had tougher business models were flushed out.
2: Penn State, you're a Penn State grad. How yeah. would you how would you grade the uh, season?
8: Uh, I would say a bit of a disappointment. Um, okay. Going heading into the season, we wanted to win at least one of the games yep. against the big two, Ohio State or Michigan. That we failed. That yep. unfortunately, our offense let us down. Our defense was actually the number one yeah. ranked defense awesome. in the in the nation. I but... don't
2: know if we have a quarterback. I'm still not convinced. Of, <laughs> yeah, he's quarterback. a five
8: star guy, but he seems a bit jittery. So Dan
2: Ives, who's a huge supporter, uh, he's just no, he's our guy. He's our guy. I'm like, I'm just not sure he's. Our guy, I don't know. We'll have to see. But uh, anyway, I mean, the good news is with the new teams coming into the Big Ten, we only have to play Ohio State and Michigan only once. Right. You know, we don't have to play both each in a season. So that'll that be good news. Herman Chen, bank analyst, uh, Bloomberg Intelligence. This is Bloomberg.
1: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller.
2: I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.
0: From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang.